We are in chapter 12, and we're going to do chapters 12 and 13 today. We'll finish up today. The first couple of verses of chapter 12 are actually the closing parentheses of the beginning of chapter 11. It's, there's the, the, the very first part of chapter 11 was a verse that said, the men of old received witness. And here in the first couple of verses of chapter 12, it says, therefore, we are now receiving their witness. They had the witness of the people in the Old Testament, and they acted on that. We are now receiving their witness, and we should act on it. The first two verses say, Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. It says we need to lay aside every encumbrance, and the Greek word there literally means weight or burden. It's very much of an athletic kind of a simile here. Put, up, put down whatever baggage you're dragging around with you that keeps you from fully believing in God. And believing God's promises. It also says lay aside, in my, in my translation, which was the NASB, it said lay aside the sin that entangles you. But if you look at the Greek there, it's very interesting that the word actually means sin that is of good standing. And when you think about it, how much sin is there in this world that is of, quote, good standing? You know, people don't see it as sin. Or it's acceptable sin, you know? And, and this verse is actually saying, be sure that you lay aside that kind of sin that so easily entangles you. That's what, it, what it's talking about there. Set these subtle encumbrances aside and run with endurance the race set before you. And then it says, fix your eyes on Jesus. And the Greek there means not only fix your eyes on him, but it means also look away from anything else. It's like get tunnel vision on Jesus um, is, is what that, that word means. Focus solely on him because he is the author, the leader, and the perfecter of faith. And, and you know that word perfect now, what that means. It's the same word we've heard over and over. It's the word that means finishing it, making it consummating it okay he is the he 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 we are the ones who believe we're the ones who take a step in faith but he's the one that makes it real he's the one that makes our faith effective he makes it happen then it says that because of the joy set before him he endured the cross despising the shame and that's really not something we meditate on very often i don't think you know, to us, we have crosses around our neck. It's a, it's, a, it's a symbol that is a symbol of hope and love and salvation and grace and gratitude. <laughs> you know, it's, it's a symbol of adoration for us. But, but when, when Jesus went to the cross, it was a very different thing. And to put it kind of in perspective for you, you know, you all remember, of course, you're old enough to remember the 60s and the 70s, but 
but during the the 70s and maybe the first part of the 80s remember when AIDS was just becoming known and and at that time people believed that the only way you could get AIDS was through a homosexual relationship and and if a family member got AIDS it devastated the family absolutely devastated the entire family and just the shame that was associated with that is the kind of stigma and shame that was associated with being put on a cross back in in Jesus time and he willingly subjected his mother and his family to that shame for for our sake and it says in verses 3 and 4 it talks about that a little bit more it says consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart in your struggle against sin you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood Jesus of course endured tons of opposition from the Pharisees you know that's recorded in scripture but but he also endured at that moment all of Israel turning away from him and they were the same people that a week earlier had cried hosanna hosanna as he came into the city because they thought he was going to be the conquering king and then when he didn't deliver how quickly their cries turned to crucify him you know and that that went those just those few days of events had to have gone from just hope that they had finally gotten it to feeling completely betrayed and left like a failure almost you know he's looking out from the cross he's looking out at Israel and seeing that they rejected him and that's who he came to save was Israel you know how hard it, it, it's telling how much time he spent in the Last Supper talking to his disciples and trying to tell them, you know, don't give up, remember everything I told you. You know, they were his last gasp of breath. There was nobody else other than that handful of folks in that room. It, it was very sad. And, and the, the writer of Hebrews is saying to these Christians, look, you know, Jesus persevered through that kind of discouragement, through that kind of pain, through that kind of torture, through that kind of shame. And look at you. You, nobody's killing you, you know. Yeah, they may have taken some things away from you, and you may have some friends who have endured hardship, but you're, you're just looking back. They were really looking back at the comforts of of the old Jewish tradition. It kind of reminds me of the the Hebrews looking back to the leeks and the garlics of Egypt when they were wandering around in the desert. That's the same kind of a feel. Look at verses 5 through 11. And have you completely forgotten this word of encouragement that addresses you as children? It says, My son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline, and do not lose heart when he rebukes you. Because the Lord disciplines those he loves, and he chastens everyone he accepts as his child. Endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as his children. 
For what children are not disciplined by their father? If you are not disciplined, and everyone undergoes discipline, then you are not legitimate children at all. Moreover, we have all had parents who disciplined us, and we respected them for it. How much more should we submit to the Father of Spirits and live? Our parents disciplined us for a little while, as they thought best. But God disciplines us for our good, that we may share in his holiness. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. This is one of those passages of scriptures that gets transformed into a baseball bat frequently by Christians who take this passage and go to somebody who is undergoing hardship and who is hurting and beating them around the neck and the shoulder saying, well, what did you do wrong? You know, there must be sin in your life because God is disciplining you and, you know, stop moaning and groaning, just buck up and, you know, it is so out of context from the Hebrew situation here, the writer's the writer to the Hebrews, to this situation, you know, he's, he's actually telling them that they are experiencing mild hardship and it's, and it, and instead of just accepting it and growing through it, they're saying, wow, we're going back. Okay. And, um, it's not a case where these people were truly hurting, you know? And so when you take this when you take this passage and you quote it to somebody who has lost a child or to somebody who's lost a job or, you know, undergoing any kind of hardship, you know, marital problems, whatever it is, and tell them, well, just buck up, the Lord's disciplining you, you know, that's, that's pretty harsh. And I think taking it out of context. On the other hand, God does discipline us. And I, I think well, it's... He takes the innocent along with the guilty, too. He takes the innocent along with you. Absolutely. And that's one of the things that, from the outside looking in, you really can't judge. We're not given to judge what God is up to, you know. We, in fact, I think it's helpful to think of the discipline as, I substitute the word pruning, and think of it in kind of a gardening context. And, and, and that's what he's saying. It may be painful, but you know, he's probably just carving off some deadwood in the first place, you know. And there's a lot of reasons that you might feel discipline, look at your own life and say, what did I do wrong? Why am I being disciplined? And one of those is what you just brought up, Joe, and that is that you simply may be part of a larger group, like a nation mm -hmm. or a church, you know, that the Lord is dealing with in a corporate way. Um, not that we're all not guilty, but... <laughs> yeah, we're certainly all guilty in some way or other. Yeah. You know, it's like I used to tell my kids, well, if I spanked you in error, I'm sure I missed one somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> Didn't give them any comfort. <laughs> but but, but um, certainly, we, you know, I would expect, if I lived through the tribulation, that I would experience the negative parts of the tribulation that are directed not necessarily at me personally, but at a corporate body of unbelievers, you know, and the fact that I happen to live in that city means I would perish with that city. 
That's why Abraham begged God when God was going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. And he said, well, you know, wait a minute. What if there's, you know, 50 righteous men in that city? Are you going to, well, yeah, God was going to obliterate them, you know, right along with the rest of them. As it turned out, there weren't one but one righteous man in that city, and that was Lot. But, but um, it, Abraham understood that God sees us both corporately and individually. Um, so um, sometimes that's why we suffer, and sometimes we suffer because we live in weak physical bodies. You know, I don't expect that just because I'm a Christian that I won't get cancer. I don't expect that my body won't wear out, you know. I certainly get on my knees and I pray and I ask for healing, you know, of my body. But if if God decides not to heal my body or not to heal my child, I, ha- I have to be in a place with God that I understand that the spirit is more important than that physical shell. And that that physical body we're in is just for a very short time. And it's just not important. And and scripture says, you know, don't don't worry about people who can hurt your body and steal your possessions. Worry about the one who can steal your soul away. You know, that's that's where you ought to be focusing. So, in the eyes of faith, we would count our physical suffering as nothing, because this body is nothing. And sometimes we suffer, because, and we can't see any reason at all, you know, none whatsoever. And, and I think that those kinds of sufferings are because Satan is still roaming the world, looking for whom he may devour. And... If God stopped Satan, it would mean the end was here. That's what's going to happen, right? And, and if the end is here, there are no more choices for people. There are no more people to be, that will be saved. And by suffering through, as far as I'm concerned, the kinds of things that we have to suffer through and the evil that we suffer through that Satan puts on us, we're simply doing our part to buy time for the people who haven't been saved yet. I'm willing to do that. Um, So regardless of whether our suffering is at the hand of God or at the hand of Satan, God can take all of it and work it to our good. And one last point. I don't think God ever disciplines us without making it clear to us why he's disciplining us. You don't just don't yank your own child up and discipline them without them having a clue as to what they did wrong. It would make no sense. God is the same way. You know, so you never have to wonder if you're being disciplined because of some sin in your life that you don't understand or don't get. God would make it very clear to you, warn you lots of times before he got to, around to doing anything drastic to you. You know, so generally speaking, Unless you know what you are doing, like Jonah, (laughs) you're running away. Unless you know, then chances are it's one of these other reasons that you're suffering. 
Schuler English, who was one of the um, commentators that I consulted, observed that when we suffer, we have several choices. He said, you've got one choice is you can actually despise the Lord's discipline, treat it lightly, ignore it, and not grow one bit. Or you could faint under it, which is what these Hebrew Christians were doing. Just lay down, have a pity party, you know, and not learn one thing from it. Thirdly, you could endure it passively. This is what my kids were really good at. It was like, if we just wait mom out, sooner or later she'll get tired, you know, of being upset, and then we can go do whatever we want. And we can do that to God too. You know, we can, we can just endure whatever the consequence is of our sin and keep right on sinning and, and not learn one thing. Or the fourth choice is we can be exercised by the discipline so that the fruit of the Spirit will be the result. We can recognize the discipline and participate in it, respond to it, offer up whatever it is that needs to be pruned, and learn from it. And one, one way to think about it is to think about the Christians you know who you respect as being wise and inspiring Christians, Christians you look to as a role model, okay? So maybe picture somebody like that in your head. It may be a relative or a pastor or, or a teacher or something. And now I want to ask you a question. Is that Christian that you admire most, the, the kind of Christian that, that the that you see where the idea of a halo comes from, you know, because they, they glow. They're almost transparent with the Lord. And is that person somebody who is very highly intellectually trained and likes to sit around and argue dogma all day? I would guess not. <laughs> I would guess that's not who you're picturing. Or is it somebody who has suffered much and has drawn close to God? as a result of that suffering. And I ask you then, is the person who has taught you the most about Christianity, perhaps the person who witnessed to you and brought you to Christ in the first place, is that person somebody who had an, a, a denominational agenda and walked you through it? You know, from, from verse A to verse B to verse C, or or, or were they the kind of person who just, their faith poured out of them in the most simple and direct words? You know, heart-to-heart -heart words, not chapter-verse words. Are the Christians that you know more, most compassionate, which one would this be? Would the Christian be most compassionate who has a large social circle or the Christian who has been rejected? You know, which of those would tend to be the most compassionate to somebody suffering? There's just, when you think about how Christians grow and how they deepen and how they expand and how the Holy Spirit makes them vessels more and more helpful to other people. It's always that second kind of Christian that I was talking about.
the one who has suffered, the one who, direct, who expresses their faith in just a very direct way, heart, heartfelt way. And when you think about that, think about what kind of Christian you want to be and what kind of Christian you are. Where do you place yourself in that continuum? Verses 12 through 14. Therefore, strengthen your feeble arms and weak knees. Make level paths for your feet so that the lame may not be disabled, but rather healed. Make every effort to live in peace with all men and to be holy. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. This says, so buck up. Don't fall down under pressure. Don't complain under adversity. What, what does he mean to make level paths for your feet? What, what makes your path level? What makes it easier to coast over those rough spots? And the answer is that whole last chapter of 11. The answer is faith. The more you actually really believe God's promises and the more you're focused on God's promises and on Jesus, the less those rough places in the road are going to be able to affect you. Faith smooths your path and it smooths the path of those around you because it includes the belief that his timing is right and that he's gonna, he is going to do whatever he says he will do. So he says, you know, help those around you who are stumbling. Encourage each other. Remind each other of God's faithfulness. Pull your eyes away from the rough places on the road. Stop looking down and start looking up at Jesus. As you know, we're called to be holy, set apart, sanctified. And also, as you know, we can't make ourselves holy. We can only believe God's promise that Jesus has made us holy. And then we just walk as if it were so. You know, we have to believe it be, be so and we have to walk as if it were so. Verses 15 through 17. See to it that no one misses the grace of God and that no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and defile many. See that no one is sexually immoral or is godless like Esau, who for a single meal so, sold his inheritance rights as the oldest son. Afterward, as you know, when he wanted to inherit this blessing, he was rejected. He could bring about no change of mind, though he sought the blessing with tears. And this does say we are responsible for our brothers. But I think that we often approach it in the wrong way. When it says not to let any bitter root grow up, that means, obviously, that we need to recognize the cause of, a bit of any bitterness but what it you know kind of skips saying is that once you recognize the cause of bitterness, you need to address it with prayer, forgiveness, communication, admonishment, love, whatever other means the Spirit shows you. It doesn't mean to just yank that brother out by his hair and cast him out, you know. And it also doesn't mean to initiate a campaign of vicious, vicious gossip against him for his bitterness. And when it says, see that no one is sexually immoral or despises God as Esau did, does this mean that you have now become the sex police? I think that a lot of Christians see themselves that way. I just got an email today, you know, with somebody 
doing something along those lines. You know, a Christian sending out a big email about, you know, something that was on TV that they objected to. Well, I don't mind, you know, standing up and objecting to things and standing up for what we believe to be right. But it does, this verse should not be taken to mean that you are policing your brother. What this verse is directed at is you. You make sure you are not sexually immoral, you know. You make sure you do not despise God. In Matthew 18, Jesus himself taught us the patterns of behavior that are necessary for handling issues in the congregation like sexual immorality or, you know, despising God or any time someone is unrepentant. Jesus said, if a sin is known to you, it's, in, it's incumbent on you to pray for discernment and then go speak to that brother in private, urging him to repent and assisting him in getting the help he needs. And if that's not enough, then you're supposed to take one or two others with you when you go back and still, in love, try again to help your brother get back on the right path. And if that's still not enough, you're to take it to the elders who must then decide how best to handle it. In the extreme case, the brother must choose between continuing in his sin and therefore leaving the congregation or repenting. And if he must leave the congregation, it's still with the prayer and love of all those left behind. How often in your experience have you seen a congregation kind of excommunicate somebody in love and prayer? And with an open door, should they repent, where that person would feel welcomed back. Well, that's how we're supposed to do it. 1 Corinthians 5, 5, Paul said, Hand this man over to Satan, so that the sinful nature may be destroyed and his spirit saved on the day of the Lord. The whole point is that you're trying to do whatever it takes to save that person, not to beat them bloody and cast them out. Verses 18 through 21. You have not come to a mountain that can be touched and that is burning with fire, to darkness, gloom, and storm, to a trumpet blast, or to such a voice speaking words that those who heard it begged that no further word be spoken to them because they could not bear what was commanded. Quote, if even an animal touches the mountain, it must be stoned, end quote. The sight was so terrifying that Moses said, I am trembling with fear. Well, this is really kind of a, a quote out of Exodus. And when the Hebrews had come to the foot of the mountain, the Lord's fixing to give Moses the law. And everybody had to prepare themselves for th three days. That Everybody had to be washed and purified. And then they were to all gather at the foot of this mountain, but nobody, no animal or no person was to come touch the mountain or they would be killed because the mountain was holy because the Lord was there. And the Lord was there. It says in Exodus 19, 16 through 19, it said, on the morning of the third day, there was thunder and lightning with a thick cloud over the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast. Everyone in the camp trembled. Then Moses led the people out of the camp to meet with God, and they stood at the foot of the mountain. Mount Sinai was covered with smoke because the Lord descended on it in fire. The smoke billowed up from it like smoke from a furnace. The whole mountain trembled violently, and the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder. 
Then Moses spoke, and the voice of God answered him. Hebrews verse 21 says the sight was so terrifying that Moses said, I am trembling with fear. And every commentator that I read said, you know what, there is no place in the Bible that says, Moses said, I am trembling with fear. But there in Exodus 19 uh, verse 16, it does say everyone in the camp trembled, and I assume that included Moses. <laughs> so I don't think it's a very much of a stretch for the writer of Hebrews to say that Moses said, I am trembling in fear. I'm sure his knees were knocking too, same as everybody else's. But we don't have to face such a frightening approach to God. Hebrews verses 22 through 24. But you have come to Mount Zion, to the holy, heavenly Jerusalem, the city of the living God. You have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly, to the church of the firstborn, whose names are written in heaven. You have come to God, the judge of all men, to the spirits of righteous men made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. We, have a, we don't have a trembling, knee-knocking approach to God. We have a joyful approach to God. We can look forward to entering the new Jerusalem, the one made in heaven that's going to come to earth, to Mount Zion. We will be in that great crowd of angels who are shouting and praising with joy. We are in the church of the firstborn. What a, what a neat thought, you know. The scripture says, Christ was the first of the firstborn, but we are also in the church of the firstborn. Look at the passage from Colossians 1, verses 10 through 20. And we pray this in order that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and may please him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, so that you may have great endurance and patience and joyfully giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in the kingdom of light. For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves. In that, you know, that's another place where it, it says we are in the kingdom. I, I think the kingdom of, of heaven, the kingdom of God, it's now, you know, we are in that kingdom, it says. In whom, the Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and for him. He, Jesus, is before all things. And in him, all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. So in all this joy, this picture of joy, it says we come to God who is the judge of all things. And it's not a picture of fear. It's a picture of justice. 
We come to God who sets all things right. That's what judging is. It's setting all things right. We come to the God who will wipe all our tears away. So can we be righteous men who live by faith, who act and endure and persevere and are made perfect? The answer has to be yes, because we've just read about the whole crowd of them already there waiting for us, cheering us on, encouraging us by their testimony that it can be done. It can be done. Hebrews verses 25 through 27 See to it that you do not refuse him who speaks. If they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, how much less will we if we turn away from him who warns us from heaven? At, the, at that time, his voice shook the earth. But now he has promised, once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. The words once more indicate removing of what can be shaken, that is, created things, so that what cannot be shaken may remain. So this begins the wrap-up of the book of Hebrews. That, that's the closing parenthesis that is the twin of the one that opened the book in chapter 1. In Hebrews 1, verses 1 and 2, where it said, In the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom... He made the universe. So the verse that we just read there in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 25 through 27, are the closing parentheses of that thought, saying, you know, God used to speak to us the old way. He now speaks to us in Son. See to it you do not refuse him. God speaks. He has been speaking. He shook the mountain when he spoke to the Israelites from earth. And now he speaks from heaven in sun. And the quote there is from Haggai. Verses, it's Haggai 2, verses 6 and 7, where it says, This is what the Lord Almighty says. In a little while, I will once more shake the heavens and the earth, the sea and the dry land. I will shake all nations, and the desired of all nations will come. And I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord Almighty. Well, Haggai was prophesying to Zerubbabel, who, as you remember, was building the post-Babylonian temple. And we know that the glory of the Lord never entered that temple. The Shekinah glory is not going to enter another temple until the millennial temple is built when Jesus comes to reign on earth. But we do know that at the second coming, there will be great cataclysmic splits. This whole shaking of heaven and earth, sea and dry land. That happens. Um, look at Zechariah 14, verses 3 through 9. Then the Lord will go out and fight against those nations as he fights on the day of battle. On that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, east of Jerusalem. And the Mount of Olives will be split in two from east to west, forming a great valley with half the mountain moving north and half the mountain moving south. You will flee by my mountain valley. For it will extend to Azal. You will flee as you fled from the earthquake in the days of Uzziah the king of Judah. Then the Lord my God will come and all the holy ones with him. That's the second coming right there. On that day there will be no light, no cold or frost. It will be a unique day without daytime or nighttime. 
a day known to the Lord. When evening comes, there will be light. And on that day, living water will flow out from Jerusalem, half to the eastern sea and half to the western sea, in summer and in winter. The Lord, which implies, since it says in summer and winter, it implies that day that it's talking about as a, as a long period, you know, not a 24-hour kind of day, because it talks about the seasons changing, actually, summer and winter. The Lord will be king over the whole earth. On that day, there will be one Lord, and his name, the only name. And so that's, of course, all talking about the millennial reign. And at the end of the millennial reign, you know, that's when the old heaven and the old earth will go away, and the new ones will be created and brought. And, you know, that's exactly what Haggai is talking about, and that's what the the writer of Hebrews is talking about. He's saying, you know these things. You know these things from the Old Testament. You know them from us telling you. You know them from Jesus telling you. You know, believe it already. (laughs) Start acting like it. Look at Hebrews 12, verses 28 and 29. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful and so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. And that's a quote. That's a quote from Deuteronomy 4.24. And then we go into the last chapter of Hebrews, chapter 13. Keep on loving each other as brothers. Do not forget to entertain strangers. For by doing so, some people have entertained angels without knowing it. Remember those in prison as if you were their fellow prisoners and those who are mistreated as if you yourselves were suffering. Marriage should be honored by all and the marriage bed kept pure for God will judge the adulterer and all the sexually immoral. That's reminding us that the marriage bed should be honored by all and that means all those who are married and those who are single. I think our culture today has the idea that people that are single don't need to honor them marriages of others you know and that's not at all how God designed it marriage is given as a picture of God's relationship with us and it's to be kept holy verses 5 through 9 keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have because God has said never will I leave you never will I forsake you so we can say with confidence the Lord is my helper I will not be afraid What can man do to me? Remember your leaders who spoke the word of God to you. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Do not be carried away by all kinds of strange teachings. It is good for our hearts to be strengthened by grace, not by ceremonial foods, which are of no value to those who eat them. And there you see the writer getting back to the problem at hand, which is that the Hebrew Christians were being drawn back into the Jewish worship traditions. This whole letter was meant to open their eyes to the real significance of what they were doing. They thought that what they were doing was just kind of optional behavior, you know, like, well, I can be a Christian, but I can also worship, go back and worship at the temple and go do all these temple sacrifices and, you know, be acceptable to my whole family and my social circle that I used to have. And the writer of Hebrews has spent this whole letter explaining to them the significance of that act and that their temptation is far more dangerous than they ever realized because it was not just a return to old traditions. 
It was a rejection of Christ, a visible rejection of Christ. Hebrews 13.10, we have an altar from which those who minister at the tabernacle have no right to eat. Well, we saw in an early, earlier lesson there, that there is a tabernacle in heaven, remember? And we also know now that there's an altar in that tabernacle. Well, we, for one thing, we learned that twice. There's two places in Revelation that refer to an altar in heaven. Well, I, you, you may remember, if you think about it, the chapter in Revelation that talks about the martyrs being huddled under the altar. And waiting for God to avenge their blood. Well, that's the altar that's being talked about here. The altar that, that we have a right to eat at, but that those who minister at the tabernacle, the old tabernacle, that's the, the earthly tabernacle, do not have a right to eat. And there's another place um, in Isaiah, it's actually in Isaiah 6, 5, where Isaiah is, is saying, woe is me, I'm a man of unclean lips, and yet God has put prophecy in me. How can I let this prophecy pass my lips? I will die from the holiness of it. And one of the seraphim actually take coals from the altar amid, that's amidst the throne of God and touch Isaiah's lips with that coal and make, it, make, make him holy, cleanse him. From his sin and we I think we mentioned in our earlier lesson does is that altar is that altar a picture of Jesus you know who cleanses us and certainly here in Hebrews the writer is linking that altar at which we have a right to eat with Jesus you know that's he is the bread and the wine right so this is our altar. We worship at the altar made holy by Christ. We eat of his sacrifice, drink of his blood. But those who worshiped in the early temple at the time of the Hebrew Christians were still in bondage to the law. They had rejected Christ, and therefore they had no right to worship at his heavenly altar. Verses 11 through 25. The high priest carries the blood of animals into the most holy place as a sin offering. But the bodies of those animals are burned outside the camp. And so Jesus also suffered outside the city gate to make the people holy through his own blood. Let us then go to him outside the camp, bearing the disgrace he bore. For here we do not have an enduring city, but we are looking for the city that is to come, just like Abraham was in the last chapter, you know, wandering around in, in Canaan, looking for that enduring city whose builder and architect was God. We're, we're doing the same thing. But we now know that that city is the city that is to come. Verse 15, through Jesus, therefore, let us continually offer to God a sacrifice of praise, the fruit of lips that confess his name. And do not forget to do good and to share with others, for with such sacrifices, God is pleased. Obey your leaders and submit to their authority. They keep watch over you as men who must give an account. Obey them so that their work will be a joy, not a burden, for that would be of no advantage to you. And pray for us. We are sure that we have a clear conscience and desire to live honorably in every way. I particularly urge you to pray so that I may be restored to you soon. May the God of peace, who through the blood of the eternal covenant brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus, 
that great shepherd of the sheep, equip you with everything good for doing his will. And may he work in us what is pleasing to him through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Then he has a little P.S. at the end. P.S. Brothers, I urge you to bear with my word of exhortation, for I have written you only a short letter. I hate to see the long version. <laughs> I have never written a letter that long. <laughs> Even with a word processor, I don't think. <laughs> I want you to know that our brother Timothy has been released. It's from that verse that we understand that Timothy was imprisoned for some period of time. If he arrives soon, I will come with him to see you. Greet all your leaders and all God's people. Those from Italy send you their greetings. Grace be with you all. So if there ever was a book that was a wake-up call, this is it. It's a call to be responsible. It's a call to draw near to God. It's a call to believe. It's a call to act on that belief. It's a call to take your brother's hand and bring him along with you. This is the picture of a Christian who has gone beyond that initial baby food. This is the picture of the Christian who is growing and deepening and maturing. This is a picture of you. <laughs>